Well, good morning. It's great to have you guys here today as we've been uh, rolling through a series called Undefeated. We're looking in the book of Acts and examining kind of those things that have tried to stall the growth of the church, those things that have tried to halt the gospel, and yet we see the gospel just keeps going right through them all. I'm uh, one of those students of things that grow. I I like um, helping my trees grow in the backyard. I enjoy looking at various things that grow. So it was interesting for me as a child, as a young man, I grew up in the 90s where the, the television was typically always on, anybody else in that house, where it just never turned off. And so it was it was on the background, it was on when we ate, so I'd sit down in the evening to watch whatever shows we were watching, and invariably the commercials would kick on, and I would just be so frustrated because they would always be these, these commercials about Rogaine and how you can regain your hair back, right? You know what I'm talking about? And as a kid, you're just like, this is ridiculous. Go back to the show. You know, you're just trying to get past those commercials. And I never thought I would be the guy who would get so vain about his hair until I realized I was losing some. And a commercial came on, not a commercial, actually, it was a news report came on, and I just, I just got captured. I was like, what? And there's some scientists in Japan that had taken a, a chemical and spread it on a mouse. And they actually started to regenerate hair follicles and, and hair on these mice. It's a big deal. And they found that this chemical was found in the oil that they fry McDonald's french fries in. And I was like, whoa, McDonald's french fries can rejuvenate hair. That was actually the line that everybody gave out in the news media. And so you can imagine all these men are walking around, like asking, "Can I get a bag of your oil, please?" And, you know, if you ever see green fle- or yellow, yellow flecks in my hair, it's because I've been rubbing my head with with uh, McDonald's French fries. But no, the. Uh, the point is that I realized that there were always these gimmicks, right? This one thing will grow your hair back. Now McDonald's fries will grow your hair back. This will grow your hair back. I found the one thing that actually will grow your hair back. It's a pretty powerful thing if you ever, if you ever find it and you ever get it. That one thing is a miracle. That's what will grow your hair back. And uh, growing the church, however, is a little different. I'm actually more of a student of that than anything else. I will read all kinds of books on growing the church and its spiritual depth and how to disciple and how to help you guys to know your relationship with God and how to grow in a relationship with God. I like to read information about how to help us grow to bring the gospel to our, our neighbors and our friends surrounding us so that they can begin to hear about the word of God, so they can begin to grow and be disciples. I really do see the church needing to grow numerically in America and uh, an opportunity for everybody to grow spiritually. And so for me, as we've been examining the book of Acts, it's been one of those joys to look at all the different ingredients that go into growing a church and all the different aspects that create a vibrant and powerful church. The only problem is it seems every ingredient leads to somebody dying. Have you noticed that yet? There seems to be persecution is the number one seedbed that seems to grow the church. If somebody's not dying, then somehow there is no sense of development within the church. And yet, I ask this question then, is that the problem that's going on in America? Because the church is shrinking in the United States. It's not growing. Christians are coming to church less. People are deciding that if they aren't Christians, they're definitely a nun. That number is going up. Entire churches are closing every single week all across the United States. The average church size is only about 125 people. And so when you start to look at the church in America, you begin to wonder, what's the problem? Is it peace? Is it the fact that you and I don't have a a barrel of a gun to our head when we proclaim that we're Christians? Is there some lack of risk that's causing the gospel to not grow? Have we discovered that the one thing that will stop the gospel is actually peace? Is that it? Has the gospel 
been defeated and can it be defeated by a time of peace? And that's really what we're going to examine today. We're going to look at a text in which the church has come to have peace. And what we will see is, no, the gospel cannot be defeated by peace. It cannot be held back even in this kind of a time period. But there are ingredients that need to be there. If we're going to see the message of Jesus Christ roll out to a community of 200,000 plus people surrounding us, if we're going to see the gospel roll into Temescal Valley, go all the way up through Norco and everywhere to be an influence, if the churches in America want to see growth, we need these three ingredients. And so I ask you to open your Bible. We're going to look at these ingredients. We're going to begin on Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 43. So as you grab your Bibles and open them up, there are Bibles available under the seats if you need one. You can open to your apps or uh, in your on your phones or wherever you're going. But um, the book of Acts, for those of you who have, been with, who have not been with us and you're joining us today in this journey, uh, is a book written by a man named Luke. Now, Luke was originally a doctor, a physician in the ancient world. He had traveled with a church planter named Saul of Tarsus, also known as the Apostle Paul. And so an, a, a Roman official asked him to lay out the history of the church and the life of Jesus. And so this is a second scroll of a two-volume work. The first being that of we call the Gospel of Luke, the second being the book of Acts. And so in our story so far, or in the history so far, this man, Saul of Tarsus, has been persecuting the church, has been attempting to shut it down on the official uh, decree of the Jewish leadership. As he came to Damascus to bring this persecution to the church, he saw Jesus Christ alive, was encountered and confronted by Jesus therefore converted and became a proclaimer of the church and a great church planter. We'll eventually write about one-third of our New Testaments and becomes a very famous figure in church history. As we understand what Saul has gone through, when he term, translates his life to the direction of Jesus, when he converts, suddenly there is now peace in the church. And that's where we pick up here in verse 31. So the church, throughout all Judeans and Galilee and Samaria, had peace and was built and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied and so here's the thing there is a peace the persecution has stopped in all the areas the church is now growing and developing and you have these two things that are going on so that the church is multiplying the first one is that word walking in the fear of the Lord. The idea here is not just like trotting along. It means to advance. It's a military term in which you, you gain ground. The church as a whole was beginning to gain ground in this thing called the fear of the Lord. The second is that they were in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think that's actually not a correct word. Most scholars would say that should be translated encouragement of the Holy Spirit. And the reason they say that is because it's encouraging the gospel. The Holy Spirit's behind the gospel, making it real, encouraging people to receive it. And so the church multiplies. And it's these two aspects that we see develop into develop throughout the rest of this text as three ingredients that you and I need to see for the church to grow during peace. And so for the church to grow during peace, the first thing that we need see, we need is number one, we must grow in godliness. We as Christians have to begin and continue forward in growing in godliness. As I put it, 
advancing in the fear of the Lord. Now, doesn't that sound like like old school stuff? I mean, this is a day of old school stuff. So the fear of the Lord, you need to fear the Lord is something that a lot of people used to say. It may give you this image like cowering in the corner, like afraid God's going to smack you for whatever you did or whatever you're doing. And that's this kind of idea behind the fear of the Lord that people have in their minds. I want to just tell you, as a Christian, that's different. But as a non-Christian, the fear of the Lord means something else. And these are two sides of like the same kind of coin. In truth, if you're not a Christian, you're not yet following Jesus, and and you're living your life, and you're doing your things. Uh, Last night, you may have had a blast, and the night before, you may have had a lot of fun. You know, you have your week that you're living life. Then you're living life in a way that perhaps you don't even think God sees you. But when you come to the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is really the idea that God watches everything that you do. He's present in your room. He's present in your thoughts. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you're doing. He knows everywhere you are. And the fear of the Lord is a lot more like a police officer driving right behind you. You know what I'm talking about? You ever get in that state? You're, you're driving along. You're all cool. You're doing the California stop, rolling through your stoplight, all you know, and all that stuff, right? And stop sign, not stoplight. That'd be bad. But so as you're pulling through the stop sign, you get in, suddenly out of nowhere, pulls this cop right behind you. Man, suddenly your hands are 10 and 2, right? You're like, perfect. you got everything shifting. You're thinking through your mind, is my registration paid? You know, is there bright cracks in my car? Maybe your heart rate rises a little bit. You're trying to make sure that you turn your blink around at the right time, that you've got everything perfect because you do not want to get that ticket. And you're worried because suddenly, this is the worst when they're right behind you, and suddenly you hear, boom! Some of you guys just had a heart attack right now. That's like... And they, then they pull around you and go get somebody else. And you're like, okay, okay. And like, you calm down. That is what I believe is far closer to the fear of the Lord. When you have the fear of the police, when you have the fear of, of a judge, when you have somebody who's watching your moves, who has the authority and the right to show you when you've done something wrong, then you're walking in the fear of the Lord. In fact, if you're not even at that stage yet, you haven't even begun to be wise, the Bible says. That the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The beginning of knowledge is to realize God is always with you, looking at everything that you do as the authority and the right to point out your wrong and do something about it. And you say, that's a miserable existence. Why would God do that? Doesn't he love me? Yes, he loves you. But the reason he's going to reveal your sin to you, the reason he's going to stand over you to show you that is because one, sin destroys your life, and two, because it wrecks your relationship with him. And what he wants is for you to realize your sin so that you'll do something about it. And what you can do about it is not work it out and not, and not sin, but what you have to do is find that God has already solved it by giving you Jesus Christ. He loves you that much. That Jesus will bear your sins, take it away so you can have a relationship today with God and not have to wait till some future event where hopefully you get it right. Which leads then to us as Christians. If you've received Jesus, you're forgiven of your sins. God is not like the police officer following everything you're doing and you're ready for the fear that he's going to jump on you because he has the authority to. In fact, you've already been forgiven. It's already dealt with. Now it's completely different. It's a lot more like what I experienced back when I was in high school. I uh, was part, I used to throw uh, the discus in track. I threw shot put discus. I did all the field events. So it was kind of my thing. I didn't understand why people wanted to run really fast. It was more fun just chucking stuff as far as I could. And so I wound up in the discus, and I loved throwing discus all the time. My dad, who was a principal at another school, finally had the opportunity to come and watch one of our meets because he was off. And so he came, and it was his birthday. This is what was awesome. I, it, was, it was in March, and so he's there. And I'm thinking, this is great. 
because my dad was at my meet, I want to do my best. In fact, he got to actually mark the marks out, out as everybody was throwing with one of the people. And so I just got in my head, I was going to do my best. I want to impress my dad. I want to, I want to please him on his birthday. And I managed to throw the school record that day. It was so cool. He got to mark it. He was really excited. We still talk about it. Now that record doesn't stand anymore, but it was, it was fun for us. And the reason it was encouraging was because, man, that's what it's like to have God with you as your father. He's there encouraging you in the right things to do. You're trying to do the things that please him. And as you advance in the fear or the reverence of the Lord, it's as if you're living with one who's for you and excited about where you're going and guiding you. And and you are able to give to him things that he's pleased with. This is the difference for us. That when we grow in godliness, it's not about all the don'ts. It's about, God, I want to live with you. I want to know you. Because guess what? The world, those who are non-Christians, those who are of other religions, they're looking at us as Christians. They're looking at us and looking at whether we're being godly or not. When they look at us and they see that we are no different from them, when we're having the same behaviors, when we have issues in our lives and we start looking around for answers, do you run to Google or God? Which one? That's a great question because if we're taking and adopting our lives after the principles of podcasts, after the principles and ideas of men, after the concepts that don't have any relationship to what God's word says, not saying those all those ideas are bad or wrong, but I'm saying if you're not filtering them through what God's word says, we're going to look no different than the world. And if they see you and me using their principles, you and me using their ideas, you and me using all their thoughts, but with no governance from what God has given us, you know what we tell them? You're right. We just tell them they've got the right ideas. We're the ones who have no ideas and no idea how to live. Because, yeah, I got this relationship with Jesus, but that just means Jesus is the best darn fire insurance salesman that's ever existed. Because he died on a cross just to get you out of hell. That's it. And so when you accept Jesus, you just you know, kind of live life and you're not sure because you're waiting for the day and hopefully it's a long, long time away when you die and then everything kicks in that we're talking about in church. Is that all this is about? Because if that's what we think, no wonder the world looks at us and says, yeah, I'll wait on that. But that's not what it's about. Jesus Christ didn't simply die on the cross to bear your sins to let you into heaven. He died on the cross to bear your sins so you can have a relationship with God in the now present moment to have a relationship with him today. And that means that when you engage with God, you begin to grow in godliness. You allow yourself to begin to live in the fear of the Lord in the positive manner where he's dwelling with you, guiding you, encouraging you. That if we put it off to some future situation, we're going to have to go look for other ways to live life well when it's already been given to us by his word and his spirit. And so the world's looking, can, are we advancing in godliness? Has this gospel got anything for me in my now and present problems in my situations today? And I want to encourage you, there is a way to develop in godliness that has been shown over and over and over again in all kinds of studies and all kinds of examinations. And it comes down to two things that if you practice, no matter what stage of spiritual development you're in, whether you're just beginning to follow Jesus, or whether you've been doing it for 15 or 30 years or 80 years, however old you are, and that is simply to have every day a time in the Word of God and in prayer. 
a time in the Word of God where you're taking in his ideas, you're taking in his knowledge, you're asking questions of it, you're examining these things, and you're pouring into your soul. And the second thing is that you're talking to God about the things of your life. God, I know I got this, uh, this, this meeting this week, and I'm just so stressed about it because i got to do a presentation. I don't know what to do. God, will you please help me? Can you please show me what to do in this situation with my friend who's been, who's been belittled online and I want to help him, but I don't know what to say? God, I, I long desperately just to, just to have an opportunity to talk to my friend. Would you give me a, a way in this week? I mean, this is the kind of prayer and conversation you're having with God. Like he's really there, like he really cares because he is and he does. And when you do this daily, you actually have an opportunity to develop in godliness. Now, I get it. Some of you guys are like, I do that. I do that every morning. Get up. I have my time in the Bible. I talk to God. I get in my car. Someone cuts me off or the traffic hits, and I forgot all about that back there, right? I met my boss, and he did it again, and I'm ready to just, like, scream. The kids went crazy. They, de- they destroyed the kitchen, and I'm ready to pull my hair, whatever it is. There's lots of opportunities for us to just go, yeah, I did that check, and it's in a box back there in the morning, and I've just not got an opportunity to get back to it. So what do we do during our day to help remind us and pull it out? I want you to live like God's with you in the fear of the Lord. And we've done this. We asked this question back last summer as we studied in Colossians, and the question that we asked ourselves is, God, what can I do to please you now? Remember that question? God, what can I do to please you now? And that's not like, God, what can I do to please you now? Because I know you're not happy with me. That's no, no, this is like, as a kid, when I come home, my kids run to me. They're all excited, like, come check out what we did. You know, that's the kind of attitude we're talking about. God, what can I do to please you now? You're pleased with me. You gave me your son to die on the cross. I'm in a relationship with you. What can I do to please you now? And you'll find that God will answer. And you'll be in that board meeting. And you'll be sitting there bored in the board meeting, because that's why they're called that. And you'll be like, God, what can I do to please you now? And he's going to tell you, listen, I want you to pray for that guy. He's having trouble. And you're like, oh, okay. You know, what, what can I do to please you now? As your kid is flopping on the floor, screaming, I don't want to go to God, whatever it is. And you're just like, God, what can I do to please you now? Because I know killing my kid ain't going to please you. And he goes, put yourself in timeout. What? Yeah, put yourself in timeout. Because you need to cool off. Then go address your child. You'll find God responds to us quickly. God, what can I do to please you now? And a scripture will come into your mind, an idea that came from the morning that you put in a box and forgot about in the traffic or at the work site. And what you will find is God is ready to help you because he's there with you. And it's nothing that he hasn't seen before. What can I do to please you now? And when we ask that question, we live out those things, and we do what the Word of God says, we will grow in godliness. You will live in the fear of the Lord. You'll advance forward in it. And when the world asks us, do you have something that's worth it? We will be able to say, absolutely, and they will see it. They will see that it is indeed worth it. And so they advanced in godliness. They grew in godliness, and we must too. If the church is going to grow in a time of peace, then we also need to realize that we need to serve well. We need to serve other people well. Let's continue on. We find this in verse, beginning in verse 36 as we continue on. Now, it says, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. 
That's right, all the junior hires are laughing, and everybody with a heart of junior hires is like, what a horrible name. I'm just telling you, man. Dorcas means gazelle, and was probably beautiful in Greek. It does not sound good in English, does it? Hey, Dorcas. <laughs> now, you don't name your daughter that in modern day. It's like, but it's a biblical name. Yeah, if you want your kid made fun of, Dorcas, great middle name. All right, so anyway, poor Dorcas. Anyway, so we'll call her Tabitha just, just to not be distracted, for me not to be distracted. All right, so it says, she was full of good works and acts of charity. If you do anything, underline that. Put, mark that. That's the focus right now. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In what way? Well, it continues on. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydd was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men urging him, please come to us without delay. Well, Peter does. So Peter rose, went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. Now note this, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. And so here she is. She's been engaging her neighbors. She's been connecting with those around her, serving them with charity and good works. What's charity? It's likely Tabitha was a wealthy widow because there's no mention of her husband anywhere in the text. And so as a wealthy widow, she was using her money to care for the other widows and other people by making garments and doing good works to care for people. Using the wealth for the sake of others is called charity. Using your gifts and caring for people with what you you can do is good works. And this, she's full of these. So full, her neighbors have shown up to her funeral, holding up the things that she's done for them to beseech and beg Peter, hey, can you please do something about this? I do a lot of funerals, a lot of funerals through my life so far, and uh, probably do a lot more. You know who doesn't come to funerals very often? Neighbors. I'll meet the coworkers. I will meet the family members. I rarely meet a neighbor. I rarely meet somebody say, oh yeah, they lived next door to me years ago. There's times where this happens, but it's the vast majority of the time it's families. It's, it's typically those who worked with them if they live, worked in the same place for a long time. My question for us is this. As we examine this, Tabitha had a great influence on her neighborhood, had a great influence on her city. If you were about to leave to, say, I don't know, Arizona, Kentucky, Tennessee, Texas, or Idaho, One of the big five right now. I mean, everybody's like, you just named where I'm planning on moving. Yeah, that's right. I know. Everybody's leaving. If you were leaving, would your neighbors try to stop you? Or would they be, they're gone, throw a party. You know, is that what's going to happen? Honestly, are we making an influence on our neighbors and our neighborhoods so that we know each other, that we're networked together, we care for each other, that there is an actual tangible result that if you were leaving, they would try to stop you. If you were about to be fired at your job and it got around your coworkers, would they go try to stop the situation because you had been there and you had valued them and cared about them? Or would they be like, hey, quick, get him out of here as soon as possible? Or they didn't even know you existed. I didn't know that guy worked here. Did you put him downstairs with the red stapler? What's going on? problem is that many of us have gotten into a different decision. We've gotten into the idea that we want to aim at our paycheck. 
more than a name. And yet Solomon reversed that. He told us very clearly in the Proverbs, if I can get there, there it is. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. A good name is to be chosen rather than riches. It's not about having a bigger paycheck. It's not about making sure you get home, have your time with your family, shut your door, sit down, eat with your kids, go to bed, get up, go back to work, drive on that same freeway where we're and do our thing at work, get back in the car. No, a good name is to be chosen greater than a big paycheck. A good name, a good reputation in the city is to be chosen and is more important. And this is the key. This is what Tabitha had. And this is what the church needs to have. This is what people are looking for. Are Christians living out like Jesus' name in their neighborhoods, that they're known, that they're loved, that they're endeared? Is it happening at your work environment? I'll tell you what. There are some things in, in our city that if they disappeared, I would miss it. I don't know if they would miss our church yet. We're doing our James projects to try to try to show that we love them and care for them. And we want the name of Jesus to be known better in our environment. If you're a part of our James projects, praise God. If you're a part of our love week, praise God. Our goal is to bring a good name, not to have a lot of wealth. We want to bless people. We want them to know we care about them. And I'll tell you what, one thing disappeared. I don't know if it was all branch disappeared. People would care. But you know what I'd care about if it left? Chick-fil-A. Amen? Anybody with me on that? I'm like, I want to sing, I want to sing Tim Hawkins' song, Chick-fil-A. You know, it's like, oh. But the bottom line is, like, what Sean has done at the Chick-fil-A's in our town has not upped the value of the chicken. I mean, the chicken's good. It's good food. But, man, the people who work there are awesome, aren't they? The way they care and they love about the people, it's a comfortable environment. It's a place you want to go to. You don't feel like you got to get out of there real quick or you're uncomfortable or you're going to get some grumpy person because their soda was wrong. Man, the, the hospitality and the generosity and the kindness that you find there has become an established place for people in our town. And if it vanished, I think people would be sad. I think they, I mean, I'm sad on Sunday. I'm like, oh, man, it ain't open. I believe that's you can use your vocation. You can allow the things that you do to become a way to bless others. You can use your gifts in church to be a ministry, to be somebody who's capable of caring for others so that when your child is moving up in a grade, they want their teacher to go with them because, man, I love you. When your kid is going into youth ministry and exiting out through graduation, they're begging for that youth leader to call them and connect with them while they're at college because, man, I want to stay connected. That's the beauty of a good name, of being known. And it can happen in so many ways. Well, this community didn't want Tabitha gone. So like we saw, they had asked Peter to come. And so Peter shows up. He's ready to act on their behalf. And he steps inside, and all these women are showing him these tunics. It says, but Peter put them all out. We'll go back to that passage. So Peter put them all outside and knelt down beside or knelt down, knelt down and prayed, and turning, or, uh, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, rise. As she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. And, he gave, and then calling the saints and, win, and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one 
Simon the Tanner. So suddenly, this is a huge miracle. Tabitha is risen from the dead, brought back to the community. They're celebrating. People are coming to Jesus like crazy because the Holy Spirit's encouraged the gospel, not only through her service, but now through miracles. And that's the third ingredient. You want to see the church grow in a church of... um, in a church of peacetime, miracles are going to be one of those aspects that it seems to include. In fact, how did they know Peter could do this? Well, we know because earlier another miracle had happened, and we want to do a bit of a flashback here in verse 32. So let's go back to this. It says, now, as Peter went here and there among them, this isn't preaching Peter. He's not going around preaching the gospel. He's going around as a minister. He's caring for people. He's, in, he's building them up. He came also down to the saints who lived in Lydda. Now, there was a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. It's likely the congregation brought him to this man. He may have uh, broken his neck or broken his back in an accident or had a stroke. But here he is paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And what we see in this case is that indeed Jesus is doing miracles. When this man rose, it went on, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now, for the church to grow in peacetime, we too must begin to trust that Jesus can still do miracles. And I mean Jesus can still do miracles, because Jesus is the one who heals, not men. We got that clear? Because I think it's kind of weird. We have a tendency to say, well, these are guys are healers, or this person's a healer, or that person's a healer. And if they're a Christian, the healing power is not coming from the person. The healing power is not coming from anything but Jesus. Jesus heals. It's very clear. But you're like, Peter's the one who healed Aeneas, and Peter's the one that rose Tabitha. No, no, no. Peter does some very important things. Because I was like, at first, when I first read this, I'm like, wow, is this like endorsing Peter as the first pope? Is that what's going on here? He's got like superpower Peter or something. And when you stop and you start looking at it, it's like, uh-uh, it's not saying that at all. First of all, the pope, the bishop of Rome, was, uh, wasn't even around yet. They didn't have a bishop yet. Peter wasn't the first bishop of Rome. What we see here is this is Peter being the head of the church in Jerusalem, going around checking on these people. And when it comes to healing, Peter never points to himself. He only points to Jesus. Notice It said right there in verse 34, And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Clearly pointing to Jesus, not to himself. Number two, when it comes to Tabitha, it says that Peter pushed all the people out, and he knelt down next to the bed. Interesting that this is a very similar image. Jesus, in his ministry, at one point was addressed by a man who ran the synagogue named Jairus. And Jairus said, my daughter is dying. And so Jesus decided, yeah, I'll go with you. On their journey to, the, to Jairus' home, Jairus' daughter dies. And he says, well, we don't need to go. She's already dead. He says, no, trust me. And so he goes into the room. And what Jesus does is he ushers all the mourners out and some of his disciples, keeps a couple of them in, Peter being one of them, and asks the parents to stay. And he comes to the daughter and he looks at this dead little girl and he says these words, Talitha, little girl, kum, arise. What's interesting is that Peter goes into this room, ushers everybody who's mourning out, kneels on the ground, which is always an image by Dr. Luke that you're submitting to the power of God. And then he says, Tabitha, kum, 
It's only a one letter difference. You think this is intentional? Absolutely. Peter is pointing away from himself to the power of Jesus, not to himself. There's no power in in Peter apart from Jesus Christ. Do not look at people who may have healing happen and go, wow, that guy healed. No, there's nothing in the person. Jesus heals. You know, well, time out. I need to keep saying Jesus heals, but I'm from a scientific world, my friend. Jesus doesn't heal. I've never seen somebody get healed by some prayer. That's not how this works anymore. Maybe in the past that happened. Okay, that's what some Christians are saying. But maybe you're not even a Christian. Maybe you're just a a common secular American, and you're like, hey, look, I believe in evolution. That happens, and there's not really a God out there. And, you know, this kind of stuff. Maybe you're here just because somebody invited you or you're married to them, and you're, you're being a great husband or wife or whatever. We're glad you're here. But I want to challenge you for one minute. If the evolutionary process was true and it's random mutation, and I mean random, that randomly things came together and randomly they formed into the genetic chains and all the things and the cells and then those randomly built into the very body of organism that you are with the complexity of your gut biome, your nervous system, your heart beating, all of the microbiome that exists within your very gut itself, all those beasties also are randomly mutated and created. Add into that that all the plants and fauna and all the animals and everything that surrounds you is randomly mutated and grown into what they are today without any association to design or endpoint. They just are what they are. I'll give you that for a second. Then why in the world does a randomly mutated bacteria that gets into you make you sick and can affect you at all? And number two, why is it some strange piece of bark or something on the other side of the planet can kill that bacteria and make you well? What does that random bark have anything to do with your body? They're separately randomly mutated from totally different directions. How in the world does medicine even work in a random world? Because it's not random. It's designed. Our medicine is so precisely designed off of discoveries of strange things that exist in this world that seem to affect our bodies because they have a design component that work with the very cell machines within your body to bring about health. And if there's a design, I want to posit to you the idea that perhaps the laws behind that design were created by the God of this universe who made this world or that multiverse or whatever you want to hold to and designed it with fine-tuned specificity so that there is an actual design that comes about to where your body can take that medicine and it works. And I'll tell you that God is Jesus Christ who came to this earth, died on a cross, bore your sins, and rose from the dead. And he made that medicine. Medicine or miracle, Jesus is still behind it. And that's why as Christians, we don't ignore either. You don't run away from medicine because you got miracles. And you don't run away from miracles because you got medicine. Medicine or miracles, we got Jesus behind it. And we can stand with both. Amen, church? So why are we not praying for God to heal more often? And I'll be honest, I'm a wrestling match. Now, this is for me. I, I grew up more secular. I grew up in a mentality of science. And I'm wrestling back to the point to seeing God work and seeing and knowing that Jesus heals. That's me. That's where I'm at. Some of you may not even want me to pray over you. That's okay. I'm all right with that. I'm wrestling in my soul to trust that God can do these things. But here's the thing. When it comes, we need to begin to seek God in prayer for healing. But I want you to note something. Healing in the scriptures never comes when somebody's sitting by themselves praying for healing over their own body. You ever notice that? You can't find, I can't find a story where that happens. 
you can find one, let me know. But I can't find one. And what you'll actually find is it's always the community that comes around, prays over somebody, and they're healed. There's a community component that is involved in prayer and involved in healing that's necessary. And so I'm just going to ask you to do something. Don't just post your prayer for healing out there on the, on the Internet so that your friends can see it on a text stream or on a Facebook post or an Instagram page or, or whatever, your, whatever social media you're in. Because honestly, sometimes we'll look at that and we'll be like, oh, yeah, I'll get back to that when I get a chance. And we forget because the stream moves on. That's why it's called a stream. I would rather you call your friends together, you call your community together to pray over you because that's where God seems to work and act. In fact, it's interesting because a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who actually didn't believe his brother was the Messiah until he met him alive after he'd been crucified and resurrected and then shifted to, yeah, my brother is alive and God, and I'm going to kind of run the church for him, wrote a letter. And in his letter, he talks about healing at the end of the letter to the church. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. So if you're just suffering and you're struggling, start having a conversation with God. Is anybody cheerful? Are you excited and happy? Hey, sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. This is interesting. Now it's a corporate thing. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And here's the picture. It's not that the elders are powerful. It's not that suddenly the elders have magical powers. No. The elders are the representatives of the community. They're the overseers of the souls of the people in the church. And when you submit yourself to the leadership and you're saying, I'm asking them to come, anoint me with oil and pray, I'm just, one, I'm trusting the scriptures because we were told to. Number two, I'm trusting that the community that they represent and my God, who they are given authority by, will pray over me and God will hear them. That's what's going on in this text. Don't think there's some sort of magic power going on here or something like that. Jesus heals, not men. And so when we see this, realize that we want to invite you guys. Our elders will allow you, and we will pray over you, we'll anoint you with oil. We will do this. In fact, we'll do this at the end of the service. But what we want to encourage you to is the opportunity to know that you can ask for prayer by your elders. And we can bring the community together to do this. Now, that may not always happen. I invited, I invited my daughter in to be prayed over by our elders because of the, this promise in this text, trusting that God could do that and do what he wants to do. And, and yeah, so my, our next step in our faithfulness is we're gonna, we want to invite somebody who we know has the gift of healing to pray over our daughter. You say, what, Greg, you're getting really weird. No, there are gifts of healing, okay? And I do not want to deny these. I don't know any scripture that says they stopped I don't know any scripture that says they, they shouldn't happen. All I know is that in 1 Corinthians, when Paul's talking to the church, not to the apostles, he says that the Spirit of God is given for several things, the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit. There's a true gift given to some of you that is a gift of healing. You go, well, how do I know I have the gift of healing? It's simple. You take your jacket off, spin it in the air, smack people with it, while at the same time smack them in the head. If they fall over and are healed, no, that is not how, in fact, that frustrates me that healing has become a show, that when we talk about healing, somehow it's like voodoo magic, boom, watch my lightning bolts. No, it's not like that at all. It's nothing to do with healing. In fact, most people I know have the gift of healing don't even like people to know they have it. 
They don't want people to understand that this thing happens because it's embarrassing to them. It, it, sometimes it scares them a little bit. Um, I want, you, I want you to understand, if you have the gift of healing, it typically looks like you pray for people, and more often than not, God seems to answer your prayer, and they're healed, and you don't know why. That's the gift of healing. Does that mean none of us should be, that, that only we should let the, only the people who are gifted with healing pray for healing? No, no, no. Obviously, we can all pray for, the, for somebody to be healed. God just likes to answer the people with the gift of healing more often because he wants to encourage the gospel so it goes out into the world and they see that God is alive and with power in his church. That this godly people who serve out of love, their God exists and works. Now, here's the thing. You don't exalt the healer. He's a healer. You know? No, Jesus heals not the person, right? You don't want to get into exalting people with their gifts. That's why you don't exalt the pastor just because he's got a gift of teaching. That's why you all teach each other at the same time. You're told, teach one another. Now, some of you, when you teach each other, you look at each other and go, I don't understand what you're saying. That doesn't make much sense. I'm really confused because you don't have the gift of teaching. Others of you, you teach people and they're like, that's, that's the clearest I've ever heard that. That's amazing. Some of you have a gift of evangelism. That doesn't mean we all shouldn't evangelize. When the gift of evangelism stands up and they start preaching the gospel, people are like, I want to give my life to Jesus. Now I'll start running to the front. The rest of us, we start saying, we want to give you the life of Jesus. They're like, huh? I don't understand. They don't look at it. They don't want it. Doesn't mean we shouldn't, give the, we shouldn't preach the gospel. Look, God gifts specifically at times with specific gifts to the body so that all of it's represented within the church. And if God has gifted you with healing, then it means that you pray over someone, and oftentimes God hears your prayer, and they're healed. But we all know that God says no a lot, doesn't he? You can ask for prayer and you can ask for healing. God says, no. Here's the thing I want to warn you of. Don't get into crisis praying. What's crisis praying? When God says no and you've already asked your elders to pray over and you've, you've asked others to pray over and you've asked maybe somebody who's got the gift of healing to pray over you and all these instances God doesn't do anything and he says no, then to go, well, this is the wrong church. They must not have enough faith. Judge their hearts and to go run off to somewhere else and go to that church and go through their system and then go to that church and go through theirs and go to that healer and go to that. That's called crisis praying. You are not willing to listen to God and trust that he has something for you and he's not doing something to you. You realize there are, there are things that you can learn in this world only through suffering and that God often says no because he has something to teach you and that otherwise you would have never learned. But you and I need to be ready when he says no to then go, okay, God, then show me what you're teaching me. I'm ready to be transformed in, on the inside since I know on this outside you're training me. That's what he told Paul. I'm not going to take that thorn from you. It was to teach him humility. I think a guy who had that much success needed some humility. I bet he did. I bet he wrestled with his flesh and wrestled with his pride. And God kept that thorn there to keep him humble. And God may keep your thorn, your struggle there to teach and train you in something. So don't get so obsessed with getting the healing that you miss out on what God's doing because he may be doing something so great in your soul. Years ago, Brent had gone up north to meet his friend who was up there and he had been, he had contracted MS or he had MS. I don't quite know how that works, but it was basically destroying his body. And it had been years now, and this is kind of one of their last times I think that we're going to go up and connect with him. And 
while they were sitting across having conversations one night, him and his friend were in this deeper conversation, and he was, you know, looking really bad, could barely move, talk a little bit. And in the middle of the conversation, as they're talking, Brent's just like, does it bother you that God never healed you, that he just said no? And he says, he still remembers this day. He looked straight in his eyes and said, Brent, what are you talking about? God did heal me. And Brent's like, what? He's like, he healed me inside. I'm not broken inside. I'm okay with where I'm at. I know where I'm going. I'm standing strong and firm. There was a transformation that God had brought in him that so many of you would long to have. You'd say, I'd give up physical health in order to have whatever this is inside of me fixed. Well, he was fixed inside. And God used that suffering in his life to bring him to a wholeness within, prepared to continue journeying with his God all the way into eternity. So don't look at the very struggles and the answers of no as a, as a final conclusion of, of destruction. No, he's doing something in your soul. He's walking with you, and he's trying to help you advance in the fear of the Lord and godliness and knowing that he's there loving you, encouraging you forward. He's giving an opportunity to use your very pain to serve other people who might also be struggling. And he may be just saying, wait until the day in which, yes, he may heal you, but it's not now. So let's grow in godliness. Let's stretch out in service. Let's seek God to work in his miracles. In a time of peace, it's that the scripture says allowed the gospel then to multiply. And it's time to trust our God that he can do these great things. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I know for some people in this room, that's a stretch. And it can be tough to put ourselves in a situation where we feel like um, we doubt and we wonder. We've asked for healing. We've asked for help. We've done these things and, and you've said no or wait and Some of us are confused and some of us want to go further in you. But God, I just pray instead today that you'd be present with us. Present with those of us who are here to pray. Present with those of us who need help. That you would work in our souls for healing, for peace. God, to grow in godliness and help us to serve others. God, we long for your gospel to be multiplied in this city. And God, we pray that you would now begin to work in that way in us all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.